Well, after almost three years and 105 sermons, last Sunday we finally finished our journey through Mark's gospel verse by verse. Really enjoy nothing more than traversing through God's word with you all, one verse at a time like that. And pretty soon we'll be moving on to yet another book of the Bible to study. But before we move on, this transition time is a perfect opportunity for me to address and preach on some other issues. And one thing I personally like to do when there's a gap to fill is some Q&A sermons. And that's what we'll be doing this morning. Over the past month, I've given you all your chance to submit your Bible questions, whatever they might be, and what the Bible says about this or that, for me to answer from the pulpit. Chances are, if you have a question, someone else has had that same question. So there's usually some profit to all of us to answer them together. Your questions are in, and between this week and next week, we'll be answering them together. And so that's our goal in this transition time. There's not really a need for any more of a special introduction, so we're just going to jump right in. Now, usually I have to say these Q&A sermons, I've done them before, they can feel a bit random because they are random. I'm answering random different questions from people in the church. This time, though, looking at over all the questions, there's a certain set of questions from different people that shared a very similar theme that quite nicely fit together. They all have to do with identifying and responding to sin be it in your own life or someone else's life. So we're going to put these together and tackle this set of questions today. Whether you know these answers or not already, as Christians, we can never grow too deep in our knowledge of how to deal with and respond to sin in our lives and the lives of others. This should be profitable for all. So that's where we're at. A little bit of Q&A sermon time. We're going to just jump right in and start off with some questions for today that you all have asked. Let's start with a good one, a simple but good question. Number one, in God's eyes, are there different degrees of sin or are they all the same? In God's eyes, are there different degrees of sin or are they all the same? Not an uncommon question. This question often comes from those with a Catholic background. Catholics teach that there certainly are different degrees of sin, namely two, mortal sins, which are damnable, and venial sins, which are not as bad. That distinction is not taught in Scripture. We're wondering, what does the Bible alone really say about this question? Does the Bible suggest there might actually be different degrees and levels of sin, or or are they all the same? Well, this is one of those questions where the answer is yes and no, so we obviously have to explain. In one sense, first, all sins are the same. How so? Well, at a base level, All sins are infinite offenses against a perfectly holy God. John Calvin said all sin are mortal sins and that they all make you deserving of death and and that he's right. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, if you just break one of God's laws or commands, you become guilty and are under the curse of death. Just break one and you become under the curse of death. Similar to James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point becomes guilty of all. Common illustration of God's standard, it's like a glass window. doesn't matter where you shoot the window. The result is a broken window. Now we know this is an impossible standard. No one can keep the whole law. And if you violate just one part of it, you're guilty of it all, you're under the curse of death, we're all condemned. 
Well, thankfully, we rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ who came and, and died on the cross to become a curse for us. That's what he was doing. He was paying for all of our sins, wiping that debt away that we can be forgiven. And so we, we thank God that his grace is greater than all of our sins. But that doesn't change the potency of sin, what, which is what this question is about. That remains. Even though we can be forgiven of all in Christ, each and every sin is still deadly. People fail to understand this because they have too high a view of self and too low a view of God's holiness. So they think, you know, that little white lie, it's not that bad, right? It's not like murder. And although that's true, every sin, no matter how small, is still high treason against the God of the universe. With every sin, whether you realize it or not, you are choosing self over God, self-will over God's will, which amounts to idolatry. And God can justifiably condemn each of us for any sin. Every sin makes you legally guilty before God. doesn't matter which one. Pick your poison. They're all spiritually deadly. It's like you open a medicine cabinet and you see bottles labeled arsenic, cyanide, strychnine, sarin, and anthrax. doesn't matter which one you drink. They will all kill you. And so it is with sin from lying, anger, greed, to adultery, murder, theft, and pick your poison. They're, in that regard, they're all the same. A quick side note here, people often wonder, well, that doesn't seem quite fair. How can a, a little sin like lying merit an eternal punishment? It seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, if that's the case. But again, that's because you fail to understand the white-hot holiness of God. It's true, our sins, they are not infinite in duration, that's true, but they are infinite in magnitude. You reach in every sin, no matter how small you might find it, reaches to the heavens, to the throne of God himself, an offense against his holiness, and therefore they merit an infinite or eternal punishment. If you don't appreciate God's true holiness, maybe you need to revisit, I don't know, the account of Uzzah. All he did was reach his hand out to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground. Yet, because of his irreverence and disobeying God, who said, never touch it, God struck him down dead right then and there. He made the mistake of thinking his hand was holier than the dirt of the ground. Take also Ananias and Sapphira. They did a good thing. They sold their property. They gave a ton of money to the church. And that, that's awesome. Yeah, okay, they lied about keeping some of the money for themselves. It's like their own money, though. They can do what they want, right? It's just a white lie. It's not going to hurt anybody. Yet for lying to God, to the Holy Spirit, God struck them dead as well. So you can see in a very real sense, before God, sin is sin. It, it, it's all the same. It's all like deadly poison. Just one drop of any one can kill you. For then you fail to attain to perfect righteousness. And that's what God requires. Perfect righteousness. Again, thankfully, Christ's blood, it's the antidote. It covers us. It makes us perfectly righteous. Otherwise, we have no hope. But that doesn't change the potency of sin. They're all the same in that regard. So, in one sense, yes, all sins are the same. They're all deadly. But, still true, in another sense, there actually are degrees of sin. There's still a sense in which you can say there are different degrees of sin. All sins are deadly, but that doesn't preclude some sins from being worse than others. 
Some sins are more displeasing to God. That's true. Some sins have greater collateral damage. Some sins come with greater consequences in this life and greater punishment in the next. For example, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, Jesus himself understood, although all of God's law is important, some provisions are weightier than others, he said. Also, Jesus said to Pilate, John 19, verse 11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me has the greater sin. The greater sin. Pilate sinned in wrongly condemning the innocent Jesus. But the Jews, the religious leaders who handed him over, they have the greater sin. Because theirs was a high-handed rebellion against the Messiah. Similarly, Jesus taught different degrees of punishment in Luke 10, which obviously implies some sins merit a greater punishment. Some are worse than others. So although all sin is deadly, some are greater than others. Imagine you've got a tiny wooden shack and you want to blow it up. And you have at your disposal a stick of dynamite, a block of C4, a napalm bomb, an atomic bomb, and a hydrogen bomb. Well, you know, all of these bombs will get the job done. They will all incinerate the wooden shack, but some will have more fallout than others. Some will affect the world more than others. So it goes with our sin. All of our sin is deadly, but some will wreck lives more here and even hereafter. Granted, your lust and your anger can get you into plenty of trouble, but no one disputes that murder and adultery are going to get you into more trouble and will have a lot more consequences and effects So in all, it's not a complicated distinction to make, but the answer is yes and no. There is some way to differentiate between degrees of sin, but they're all deadly. What's important in this discussion is that you, number one, take all sin seriously. So that's good. Take all sin seriously, while at the same time, number two, especially beware the greater sins. If you're in a room with the king cobra, the deadliest snake, and also a rattlesnake, You're going to pay extra attention to the king cobra, but that doesn't mean you should ignore the rattlesnake. Both are worthy of your diligence to avoid, and so it goes again with sin. Don't let your guard down to any sin or temptation, and then you'll do just fine. Now, speaking of degrees of sin, someone else asked a somewhat related question. So it fits right here, number two. Can true believers commit serious sins like murder and adultery, etc.? Also, can King David really be used as a legitimate example, seeing that we have now the Holy Spirit? So, in, in, in essence, you know, can true believers commit those really serious sins like adultery, murder, etc., the big ones? This person understands that Christians are still sinners, yes, but they're struggling to understand how a true believer could do something so bad. And yeah, we all know the example of King David in the Old Testament who committed adultery. He authorized the uh, death of Uriah. But they're wondering, you know, are things different for us on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit now? Some of you, you know, this 
for you, you might think, yeah, I got this one, no, no big deal. But you might be surprised how often I get this question or, or versions of this question. So I want to take a little extra time, actually, and answer this one in a, in a deeper way you might expect. Like I think, I think everyone actually understands, of course, believers can commit serious sins. The real question is, what does that mean for them or, or what happens next? What, what, what's the implications of that? Just by way of contrast, I want to revisit the Catholic degrees of sin, what, what they believe. And you'll see why. Catholics believe that, yes, of course, a believer can commit serious sins like murder, adultery, whatever. But, of course, if you do so, those are mortal sins, so you lose your salvation. They believe mortal sins result in the loss of sanctifying grace, which revokes justification and leaves a person condemned. Why do they believe this? Well, it goes back to their view of justification. I want to talk a little bit about justification. What's that word mean? It's in the Bible. Justification, in essence, means being made right with God which is akin to being made righteous before God. Everybody believes to get to heaven, you have to be made righteous. The question is, how do, you, how do you do that? How are you made righteous? Well, Catholics will say justification. They'll say, yeah, you know, God's grace. But they really teach it's up to you and your effort. You must do certain things to be justified and to stay justified. First, you're justified by the act of baptism. That gets you started, but that's not enough. You must also then perform good deeds to get and maintain righteousness before God. But if a person commits a mortal sin, they lose their justification, which is, again, akin to losing their salvation. They can regain their justification, but it's through more human effort. Their sacrament of penance is for those who have sinned after baptism. Through penance, they earn God's forgiveness and they recover their justification. Acts of penance include fasting, scripture reading, deeds, and also repetitious prayers, you know, Hail Marys, Our Fathers, stuff like that. If you don't finish your penance in this life, well then, you're okay. You just go to purgatory in the next life. You will continue to pay back until you are made righteous through your deeds. So, hey, that's at least the Catholic answer to the question. Of course, believers can commit serious sins, but it's not a good answer, though. We, of course, sharply disagree with that. Why? Well, that's just not what the Bible teaches about justification. And we are restricted to the Bible alone, Scripture alone. It's one of the main reasons we're not Catholics today. We're Protestants. We do not hold to that view of justification. So let's ask, what does the Bible alone teach about justification, being made righteous Before God. How are sinners made right with God? Well, the Bible teaches justification comes as a gift, it's a free gift to you, by God's grace through faith in Christ. God's grace, meaning his total unmerited, undeserved favor to you. Romans 3, verses 23, 24, familiar, they say, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but being justified, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified as a gift by his grace. Galatians 2.16, man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. It's very clear. And grace means 
grace, his free favor. Justification, which is the essence of salvation, comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, apart from the works of the law. And when God justifies a sinner, he he justifies a sinner. It's done. Your debt is gone forever. You are made right forever. 1 Peter 3.18 teaches that Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. His payment was complete. Likewise, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, When you were dead... In your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Not half, not up to baptism, all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So it's, it's done. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, That's what he meant. He meant your debt of sin, all of it, is paid for and cast aside. There's nothing left for us to pay now when we come to salvation. We're justified by faith. There's nothing there for us to pay because of what he did. Here in this life or purgatory the next, another unbiblical doctrine. Hence, John 3.18 says, He who believes is not judged. And of course, Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation anymore. God's salvation comes with complete forgiveness, and it also comes with perfect righteousness. We are made, we're not righteous, but we are made righteous via our union with Christ at the moment of salvation. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, it says, We are found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So so there it is. At the moment of salvation, what happens? All of our sin debt is transferred to Christ's account. It's paid for, and that's how we're forgiven. That's how we escape hell. At the same time, all of his righteousness is transferred to our account. We are made righteous. We're reconciled to God. That's how we gain heaven. We earn heaven, not by our works, but by Christ's finished work on the cross just given to us. That's how we gain eternal life. This is all by God's grace. It's just his favor. He chooses to do this. He didn't have to do this. If he didn't do this, no one would be saved. But he did so. And we access this through faith alone. And now, if you are in Christ... Nothing can separate you from that love, that redeeming love of God. Not even your own sin. But wait, if that's true, so if you're tracking with me, if that's all true, there's an ancient objection that always follows this teaching on grace. If we're saved by grace, if we're totally justified, we're forgiven forever, doesn't that basically encourage people to sin? It's not like you're giving people a blank check to live however they want, and they can just say, it's, I'm covered by grace, I'm forgiven, I can do what I want now, right? That's actually how the Pharisees responded to Paul's teaching on justification by grace through faith way back in the early church. 
Remember, the Pharisees, they were not about grace. They were about the law. The law is the means of producing righteousness. You've got to keep the law. All this talk about free grace, to them, they think that's just going to result in lawlessness and, and sin. Catholics, of course, they're basically modern-day Pharisees, so it's no wonder they have the same objection to this teaching. They think, you know, if all this free grace stuff is true, you know, what's stopping Christians from sinning as much as they want? Well, what does Scripture say? Wisely, Paul preemptively asked and answered these very questions right after his teaching on justification by grace through faith in Romans chapter 6. What does he say? He asks their questions in advance. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he's saying, look, no, those who are justified by faith, you don't get a blank check to sin as much as you want. If you've truly died to sin, you cannot keep living in it. In Christ, are we free? Yes, we're free, but we're not free to do whatever we want. We're free to finally do what God wants. It's a freedom to obey, a freedom from slavery to sin. We are free also from the demands of the law, which we couldn't keep. And so he says next in Romans 6, verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, may it never be. The strongest negative in the Greek language. Believers are free from slavery to sin, but we're now slaves of Christ. We're slaves of righteousness, he says in Romans 6. And we're bound to live for him. So the basic answer, it's totally inconsistent for true born-again believers to live lives given over to sin. The new birth, it's a radical change. So it's not possible for someone to be truly saved, but then remain totally unchanged. Yes, we still sin, but we're different. Now you fight sin, you hate sin, you fall short, you repent of sin, and you live a new life with new desires. Those who are justified in Christ will not live like they used to, and that is in habitual, unrepentant sin. Now, I hope you get all that. You still might have some questions, though, because doesn't that happen still? Meaning, I think we all know people or have known people. They call themselves Christians, but then they're living a life off in sin and unrepentant sin, just living like an unbeliever. But they still call themselves a Christian. So, so what's up with that? What does that mean for them? Does that mean they've lost their salvation? No. That's not the answer. Again, if you understand what God does when he justifies someone, it's crystal clear that that's a permanent thing. If someone is truly justified by grace through faith, that will never be changed. God never unadopts those whom he adopts. Many verses conclusively teach this. Famously, John 10:28, Jesus says of his sheep, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then after he says, nor can they snatch them out of the Father's hand. Justification comes by God's choosing, God's grace, God's power, and he doesn't revoke it. Again, Romans 8, what can separate us 
from that love of God in Christ. And now we're in Christ. What can ever separate us from that redeeming love? He says over and over again, nothing, not even your own sin. But I know, I know people always say to this, that just doesn't seem fair. Look at those Christians and they're over there, they're living in sin and they just claim, hey, once saved, always saved as their means to just do whatever they want. That just doesn't seem fair. Why do they get a free pass? But not so fast. What do we make of those people? Scripture does not give us the option to say they've lost their salvation. That is not a possibility. But what's left to consider? I don't know, maybe that they were never saved to begin with. And would you be surprised to learn that Jesus taught that very thing? What did he say? You will know them by their fruits. What? Who's them? True believers from false believers, true and false teachers. He teaches this in Matthew 7. And he said later in verses 21 and following or before and following, there would be many, not a few, but many who claim to believe in him. Yet they live in, he says, lawlessness. They, They live in just total lawlessness. And on the day of judgment, they will wonder in terror why they're being judged and rejected. Remember what Christ says to them. Depart from me, I never knew you. He doesn't say, depart from me, you've fallen from grace. He says, I never knew you. Like not even to begin with. In that saving relationship sense that he's saying, you never had a saving relationship with me. Not that you had it and you lost it. You never had it. You find the exact same teaching in 1 John. A bunch of verses here. You know I'm going fast with these Q&A sermons. If you want, you can turn to 1 John. There's a bunch here. 1 John 1, verse 6. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look, anyone can claim they know God. But he says, if they walk in darkness, and what he means by that is living a life of unrepentant sin. Walk is your daily practice. He's saying their confession is a lie. That they, When they say they know God, they're, they're lying. They're not born again. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, very strong. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him. Catch that phrase. He's not saying this is how we know him. This is how we know that we do know him. In other words, how do you know if you're truly saved? That's an assurance of salvation verse. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You're not saved by keeping his commandments, but the saved person will keep the commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. They're very, very clear. Verses about what a true believer will look like, what a false believer will look like. And don't get me wrong, we're not saying Christians don't sin. What did he say back in chapter 1, verse 8? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The answer is not to deny you're a sinner. No, we know we're sinners. We know we still sin. The response to our sin is not to deny them, but to confess them. The next verse, 1 John 1, 9. Instead of denying our sins, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Like when Christians sin, we're not unsaved. You don't lose your salvation. You don't lose your justification. God is still our Father. But the joy of our fellowship is hindered. And so we confess, we repent. God restores us to that joy. But there, that doesn't mean there's condemnation. There's never condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He is our advocate. He's our propitiation. He says, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 now. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You know, we're trying not to sin. He says, I'm writing that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's there advocating for us, even if we do sin. And he says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. We can't be held guilty for our sins anymore because Jesus already paid for them. He propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath for them. So put all this together. What is a believer's relationship to sin? If you have a a true faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God justifies you. That means he has forgiven all of your sin debt and he's given you Christ's righteousness. You are made perfect in his eyes. And here on earth, we still sin, but that sin no longer condemns you. That does not give you an excuse to go on sinning though. Rather, with our justification comes new birth where we're transformed. Now we hate sin. We want to strive toward Christ-likeness. We fall short, we repent, and yet we grow. And when Christ returns and we go to him, we are glorified. Our redemption is complete. But at the same time, Jesus said tares would grow among the wheat. Speaking of false believers, and he says these are identified in scripture as those who profess Jesus with their mouth, yet clearly deny him with their lives. These people, they're not becoming unsaved by their deeds. Rather, they're simply shown to be what they are, untransformed by God's grace. They have not fallen from grace. They're just making pretty clear they never received God's amazing grace to begin with. Because when you are touched by God's grace, you are new. You are changed. You can't fake it. It's not a small thing. It's a radical change that takes place inside out. Again, for the other person, we're talking about a person living in habitual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, walking in darkness, walking no different than they were before their profession of faith. Scripture leaves no doubt such a person is simply unregenerate. They were never saved to begin with. Now, I know I've really labored this question. I could have given you a very short, simple answer. But we're talking, this is an opportunity to talk deeper about salvation, the nature of true salvation. And you can never have enough teaching on that, right? So that's fine. But now we can finally apply all that foundation to the original question, which was a simple question. You know, can true believers commit those serious sins, murder, adultery, stuff like that? Well, here, the answer is yes, of course they can. And they can be forgiven of serious sins. Is God's grace greater than even our worst sins? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you're still wondering, okay, but how can a true believer fall into such serious sins? How does that even happen? Because you think to yourself right now, most of you, I'm sure, I could never do that. 
and I could never do drugs or steal or commit adultery or whatnot. And, and the answer is, well, yes, you could. You all have a sinful flesh. And do not underestimate the power and the deceitfulness of sin and the depravity of your own flesh. Granted, you may not be able to do those things right now, but I'll tell you how it works because I've seen it too many times. Just give me any Christian who is detached from the vine of Christ, who is walking in the flesh, not by the Spirit. They're spiritually malnourished. They're detached from the word, from prayer, from church, from fellowship, from the Lord's Supper, you name it. They're going to be easy picking for sin and temptation. Little by little, the strength of their faith will be whittled away, weaker and weaker, like a vine cut off, more and more brittle. And pretty soon, the smallest temptation will take them down and, and they'll fall and they can fall hard can happen to anyone who persists in walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. So take heed lest you fall. It can happen. At the same time, here's what I I think matters more, not to excuse sin, but how a person responds when they fall even into serious sins tells you everything. Again, take a Christian who falls into sin, great or small. They fall and then they stay there. They stay down. They refuse to repent. They hold on to their sin. They delight in it. They, they cherish it. They won't let it go. As scripture said of those people, they're liars, meaning their profession of faith is, is false. By their own deeds, they prove it false. They walk in the darkness. And so doing, they prove they've never been born again. In fact, isn't that what the process of church discipline is meant to reveal? If someone is caught in sin and they refuse to repent, by the end, you treat them like what? Like an unbeliever. Because that's what they are. But if you have someone who's fallen into serious sin, yet when they're confronted, like David, and they, they're broken, they're humbled. Well, praise God for that. That's the right response. True biblical repentance, where a person genuinely turns from their sin and seeks the Lord. That, that is the right response. That's a sign of the new birth. Because... Unbelievers don't respond to sin like that. We're talking genuine humility and brokenness. Praise God for that. That should be our response to all of our sins all the time, great or small. Remember, and all sin is basically the same in that regard, right? By the way, yes, I still think David is a perfectly valid example. I don't see anything in Scripture that teaches just because he was under the old covenant, God held him to some different standard for those sins. In fact, I think his sins and his repentance and his restoration were included in Scripture on purpose, of course, both to warn us, yet also to encourage us. Because although his sins were great, there's no greater example of biblical repentance and restoration in Scripture than David. So be encouraged. If you're here and you've fallen into serious sin, repent, be restored, and rejoice. He who's forgiven of much loves much. You probably love God more. And just read Psalm 32 and 51. You can see what the heart of a true believer looks like. David wrote Psalm 32, Psalm 51 to express his repentance. On a personal level now, as you consider this question, you know, first, make sure you guard your own heart. Like I said, beware the deceitfulness of sin in your own life and in the lives of those around you and take heed lest you fall. But I also would say, beware the leaven 
of the Pharisees. It's very easy, especially for young Christians, to revert back to the law and their thinking. And they treat others as if they're under the law. And so they see other Christians breaking the rules. They want to bring down the hammer of the law on them and, and judge them. But remember, we're not under the law, but grace. This doesn't mean we excuse sin, but it does mean we show grace and compassion, even to those caught in sin, caught in trespass. We want to be there to help them, to restore them, not to judge and condemn them. You leave that to church discipline. If someone is hardened in sin, they'll have to go down that road to be revealed as what they are, an unbeliever. But you just worry about showing grace and compassion to those even in serious sin. Pray for them and help them. Now, speaking of that issue, this actually sets up a third and final question. Yes, it is possible for Christians to sin, great or small, even after justification. When that happens, though, and you see it happening in someone else, what should you do about it? This is question number three. How do you admonish and give biblical reproof? How do you admonish someone and give biblical reproof or rebuke someone? Is it a command? Is it sin if we ignore the sins of others? Are we sinning if we see someone in sin and then ignore it? How do you admonish and give biblical reproof? So now you can see when I said these three questions, they fit together nicely. Christians, though justified, still sin. So if you see that in someone else's life now, what, what should you do about it? Well, I think for a lot of people, this has to be one of the most uncomfortable subjects. It's right up there with public speaking. They would rather die than go and talk to someone about their sin. It's so awkward. It's a fear of man issue. You can get the sermon I preached not too long ago on fear of man. But whether you like it or not, yes, this is something God wants you to do. Then some people try and hide behind some proof texts, like Matthew 7.1. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. See, there it is. We don't, we don't have the right to judge people. We can't like talk to people about their sin. Except in the verses that follow that verse, we are actually authorized to judge. And later in that same chapter, Jesus tells us to judge false teachers by their fruit. Now this verse in the context, it's a caution against self-righteous hypocritical judging. And that's why he says right after, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. We don't ignore the speck in our brother. We have to judge, but you judge yourself first. That's what he's saying. This is no prohibition against confronting and restoring a sinning brother or sister in the church. You want to make it real simple? Luke 17, verse 3. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Does it get much more straightforward than that? If your brother sins, rebuke him. Also, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul said, What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those outside the church, God judges. But remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We don't judge non-believers. They're not in our authority. They're not bound by the law of Christ. We can't Really, we have no authority over their sin other than share the gospel with them. But when you're in the church, you claim Christ, you are now fully accountable for that. Plenty of verses like this. So first part of this question, is this a command? Yes. Is this something God wants you to do, all of you? Yes. This is merely a reflection of the second greatest command to love one another. 
If sin is so evil in God's eyes and it's so damaging in, in our lives, the most loving thing you can do for someone is to help them overcome their sin. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Your phony friends are the ones who will ignore the sin in your life. But your true friends will love you enough to do the hard thing, which is to actually talk to you about it, risking the relationship because they love you enough to seek your purity. And I hope if you actually have someone like that in your life, you really value that person. They are a true friend. Now, the question is, when should you say something? When should you speak up? Well, basically, whenever you witness unrepentant sin in a professing believer, when you witness clear unrepentant sin in a professing believer. Again, with unbelievers, it's a different ball game. Granted, you can still talk to them about their wrongdoing, and perhaps you might need to, but you can't, we can't hold them to the standard of Christ. Really, their sin is more an opportunity to share the gospel with them than anything, so do that. But for fellow believers, you confess Christ, that means you represent Christ to the world. And so like Matthew 18 says, you see your brother's sin, go and show him his fault in private. You need to go to them and and help them overcome their sin. And if you see it, you're the witness, you become the one responsible to go tell them. Now you might say, what about Proverbs 19.11? It is glory to overlook an offense. Or 1 Peter 4.8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Those are great verses. They're valid. And things can get a little tricky. Maybe you have a situation where someone personally offends you. They come over to your house. It's raining. They track mud all throughout your house. They haven't sinned per se. I guess you could construe it that way. you know. But you're certainly offended. You're upset. But you would be wise to overlook that offense and show grace. What's also tricky is when you see someone acting foolishly. They may not be in some clear-cut sin, but you see them making foolish decisions. You know that's going to bring ruin in their life later on. Do you say something or not? In such cases, what's often needed is a close friend who can speak truth into, into their lives such that they will receive wisdom. But I think scripture is also clear. If you witness someone in a clearly defined, unrepentant sin, you need to go to them. It's still not always easy to identify because often the people have heart sins that are seemingly invisible. Talk about anxiety, discontentment, pride, lack of self-control, selfishness, impatience, etc. Those kind of heart sins, easy, they're very hard to pin down. And so they can be hard to talk to someone about them. Doesn't mean we ignore them, but these often present us with an opportunity maybe more for discipleship to help someone come along them with their ongoing struggle with a given issue. Now, I will say, remember to discern what category a person is in before you talk to them. Discern what category a person is in before you talk to them. This is this golden verse in counseling, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Know it well. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with everyone. Just get, file that one away. And just keep that. Get that straight. Save your serious rebukes for the one who's unruly, living in unrepentant sin. They need that rebuke. Some people, though, they're already broken by their sin. They're faint-hearted. They've been humbled by their sin. You rebuke them, you will crush their spirits. They don't need a rebuke. They need encouragement. 
lift them back up, help them to repent and grow. Some people are weak. It's referring to the spiritually mature. They just need instruction. They don't even know better. And of course, be patient with everybody. All right, so sometimes, by wisdom, you might overlook an offense. That's good. Sometimes a person doesn't need a rebuke. They actually need encouragement. Be discerning. But there, are, there will be times where you see someone, they're in sin, they're unruly. It's clear they need a rebuke. They need a reproof and admonishment. Someone to talk to them. So now we'll ask, what do you actually say? Like, that's super awkward. What do you say? Well, to answer this question, I like to draw on a resource I use in counseling all the time. Pick up a copy of this book. It's called The Peacemaker. We've talked about it a bunch here. The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. If you want the long version, a whole book on how to do that, basically, how to resolve conflicts, biblically. So you can get the 300-page version if you want the long answer. I'll give you the condensed two-minute answer to that question. But I like how he's wisely laid out a path to speak to someone to resolve these conflicts. He uses four Gs. Very catchy. Step one is to glorify God. This is just you, internally. Meaning, before you say anything, you just check your desires at the door. What, what are you trying to get out of this? Why do you want to talk to that person? You trying to win an argument or prove a point? Don't, don't say anything, because that's the wrong attitude and the wrong desire. Your desire must be to glorify God and to help this person. You need to get your heart attitude right before saying anything. And that heart attitude where you're just seeking God's glory in this, that has to color everything you say and do. So that, that's obviously step one. Step two is get the log out of your eye. Get the log out of your own eye. Going back to Matthew 7, just take that caution seriously. Don't be the hypocrite. You want to talk to them about their sin, but do you have sin first that you need to deal with? So examine yourself, lest there be any hypocrisy in you. If this is a conflict, a personal conflict, you just worry about yourself first. You repent of your sin first, any way you have contributed to the conflict first. Before you even worry about them, just get yourself right before God and before them. Seek their forgiveness for what you have done. You do that first. This doesn't mean you have to be absolutely perfect before you can ever talk to someone about their sin, but it does mean you need to, to, to deal with yourself first. If need be, if applies, you need to deal with yourself and your own sins first. Only then comes step number three, which is gently restore. Gently restore. Notice it doesn't say gently condemn, but gently restore. Because isn't that your goal, right? You're not talking to someone because you want to condemn them. Again, if that's your attitude, go back to step one. (laughs) But the goal is to restore. You should aim to graciously speak to them about their sin to encourage repentance, restoration, and growth. A bunch of verses come to mind for this. Matthew 18, that Matthew 18 verse, verses 15 and 16. Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. First, you, the witness, deal with this in private. Go to them by yourself. You don't need to come to me first. Just talk to them first by yourself. Only when you're dealing with someone in a hardened, unrepentant sin do you involve others or come talk to us and your your leaders. Also, Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Be plain. Use scripture. Talk about their sin. You don't need to beat around the bush, but call sin sin, what it is. 
Yet do so with the spirit of humility and kindness. Don't need to be a jerk about it. Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Remember, this is not a fight. This is a, a conversation, a gracious conversation you're trying to have with a person. So you're praying, you're trusting God to work, and as you are humble, he will bless you. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, big or small, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that pervades what we're talking about here. This is not bringing down the hammer. This is being gracious and gentle, yet firm and clear about sin because you love them and you love God. Remember, the goal is not condemnation, but restoration. You're not trying to bring down the hammer of the law. You're dealing with a Christian. So minister the gospel of grace. You're trying to minister grace to them, reminding them of Christ, his good news, how his work forgives our sin and also compels us to pursue holiness. If you can get that across with the spirit of humility, I found most true believers will respond positively and thank you for dealing with a relatively mature believer. They will thank you. Then comes step four. Finally, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. This is where you simply exchange full forgiveness, not half forgiveness where you hold on to some things, but full forgiveness in the same way that God forgives us, you forgive them 100% and vice versa. And your relationship is completely restored, just like God does with us. Well, we could say a lot more here, but just to wrap it up, I, I hope in regards to this question, though, at the very least, you take it seriously. You take seriously the commission to look out for one another and to help one another strive against sin. Just think about this. God, when he saved us, he knit us together in one body, the church, and now he wants us to be on guard against sin and temptation in our own lives and also the lives of others. Does he not? Does he want you looking out for the others running the race, for stumbling blocks in the road of sin? We all have our blind spots, do we not? And don't you want someone to run with you who loves you, genuinely loves you, and can and watch your back, can tell you, hey, you're about to stumble. There's a rock in your path. Watch out. Be on guard for yourself and for one another. I know it's awkward because you're trying to walk the line between being the sin police while looking out for one another. But remember the stakes. If you don't say anything and you see someone in sin, remember what's at stake. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you see someone in sin and you never say anything, by omission you are contributing to their hardness in sin. It's not your fault, of course, but God is telling you to do something. And if you don't and they become hardened, you have a part to play in that. You have failed to serve your brother or sister in, in running against sin. So you take this seriously. We need to fight for one another against the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a serious enemy, and even though we've learned today there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, sin can still bring much ruin and hardship in this life, even for believers. It can affect others. It doesn't honor God. 
With the new birth, we, we want to walk with the Spirit, not the flesh, right? But sometimes the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So we need help. And therefore, look out for one another, lest they get caught up in a greater sin. Develop deeper relationships with one another so that you can speak truth into their lives and they'll receive it. That can be built up into Christ. And that's our ultimate goal. Ephesians 4.15 again. Speak the truth in love. But he says that because we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's, that's the goal of all of it, of our race, Christ-likeness. So simply help others to run this race. Well, that's going to do it for our questions for today. Just a, a final thought. Given this theme of sin, I think it's fitting for us to remember to always give thanks to God because he has resolved all of our sin issues on the cross. He sent Jesus to pay for our sins, great and small, to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us to one another. I hope you see in all these discussions about sin, they all will come back to one thing. Christ and his work and his person. He is the answer to all sin. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others, Christ is your answer. He is that good news. The answer to sin, the means of all reconciliation. Apart from him, we'd be lost in the muck and the mire of the world. But as you believe in him and now walk in him, Be sure to minister his good news. And you will see God glorified in your life and the lives of others. Let's pray for today. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for our time this morning covering some questions from the church. Good questions and questions your word is is so full of answers to give. We, We need to be built up in the knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the faith, especially knowledge about sin and ourself. Sin is our, our mortal enemy seeking to draw us away from you, seeking to spiritually kill us. It, it did, it succeeded, yet thanks be to God through Christ that you sent him to, to pay that price, to redeem us, to bring us to yourself, Lord. Thank you for what you've already done for us. We continue our struggle in our own lives, great or small, in the lives of others. We want to just take seriously the race. You have saved us to be like Christ, and that is to pursue holiness in our own lives, though we're still fallen. May we just take this seriously for our lives and the lives of others to run with all diligence, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, disentangling from sin around us as we run and helping others do the same. Bless us as we leave, Lord. May we take these thoughts with us. May they encourage us that our debt has been paid, yet spur us on to greater heights and greater uh, love for you. In your name we pray. Amen.